Chapter 7, Part 1 of Memoir of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoir of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. The Magnetizers, Part 1. Some deemed them wondrous wise, and some believed them mad. Beattie's Minstrel. The wonderful influence of imagination in the cure of diseases is well known. A motion of the hand, or a glance of the eye, will throw a weak and credulous patient into a fit. And a pill made of bread, if taken with sufficient faith, will operate a cure better than all the drugs in the pharmacopoeia. The Prince of Orange, at the siege of Breda in 1625, cured all his soldiers who were dying of the scurvy by a philanthropic piece of quackery, which he played upon them with the knowledge of the physicians, when all other means had failed. Note 64. See Van der Meij's account of the siege of Breda. The garrison, being afflicted with scurvy, the Prince of Orange sent the physicians two or three small files containing a decoction of chamomile, wormwood, and camphor, telling them to pretend that it was a medicine of the greatest value and extremest rarity, which had been procured with very much danger and difficulty from the east and so strong that two or three drops would impart a healing virtue to a gallon of water. The soldiers had faith in their commander. They took the medicine with cheerful faces, and grew well rapidly. They afterwards thronged about the prince in groups of twenty and thirty at a time, praising his skill, and loading him with protestations of gratitude. Many hundreds of instances of a similar kind might be related, especially from the history of witchcraft. The mummeries, strange gesticulations, and barbarous jargon of witches and sorcerers, which frightened credulous and nervous women, brought on all those symptoms of hysteria and other similar diseases so well understood now, but which were then supposed to be the work of the devil, not only by victims and the public in general, but by the operators themselves. In the age when alchemy began to fall into some disrepute, and learning to lift up its voice against it, a new delusion, based upon this power of imagination, suddenly arose, and found apostles among all the alchemists. Numbers of them, forsaking their old pursuits, made themselves magnetizers. It appeared first in the shape of mineral, and afterwards of animal magnetism, under which latter name it survives to this day, and numbers its dupes by thousands. The mineral magnetizers claim the first notice, as the worthy predecessors of the quacks of the present day. The honor claimed for Paracelsus of being the first of the Rosicrucians has been disputed, but his claim to be considered the first of the magnetizers can scarcely be challenged. 
It has been already mentioned of him, in the part of this work which treats of alchemy, that, like nearly all the distinguished adepts, he was a physician, and pretended not only to make gold and confer immortality, but to cure all diseases. He was the first who, with the latter view, attributed occult and miraculous powers to the magnet. Animated, apparently, by a sincere conviction that the magnet was the philosopher's stone, which, if it could not transmute metals, could soothe all human suffering and arrest the progress of decay. He traveled for many years in Persia and Arabia in search of the mountain of adamant, so famed in Oriental fables. When he practiced as a physician at Basel, he called one of his nostrums by the name of Azoth, a stone or crystal which, he said, contained magnetic properties and cured epilepsy, hysteria, and spasmodic affections. He soon found imitators. His fame spread far and near, and thus were sown the first seeds of that error which has since taken root and flourished so widely. In spite of the denial of modern practitioners, this must be considered the origin of magnetism, for we find that beginning with Paracelsus, there was a regular succession of mineral magnetizers until Mesmer appeared and gave a new feature to the delusion. Paracelsus boasted of being able to transplant diseases from the human frame into the earth by means of the magnet. He said there were six ways by which this might be effected. One of them will be quite sufficient as a specimen. If a person suffer from disease, either local or general, let the following remedy be tried. Take a magnet, impregnated with mummy, note 65. Mummies were of several kinds, and were all of great use in magnetic medicines. Paracelsus enumerates six kinds of mummies. The first four, only differing in the composition used by different people for preserving their dead, are the Egyptian, Arabian, Pisasphaltos, and Libyan. The fifth mummy of peculiar power was made from criminals that had been hanged, for from such there is a gentle cication that expungeth the watery humor without destroying the oil and spiritual, which is cherished by the heavenly luminaries, and strengthened continually by the affluence and impulses of the celestial spirits, whence it may be properly called by the name of constellated or celestial mummy. The sixth kind of mummy was made of corpuscles, or spiritual effluences, radiated from the living body, though we cannot get very clear idea on this head, or respecting the manner in which they were caught. Medicina diatastica, or sympathetical mummy, abstracted from the works of Paracelsus, and translated out of the Latin by Fernando Parkhurst, gentleman, London, 1653, pages 2 and 7, quoted by the Foreign Quarterly Review, volume 12, page 415. Take a magnet impregnated with mummy and mixed with rich earth. 
in this earth sow some seeds that have a congruity or homogeneity with the disease then let this earth well sifted and mixed with mummy be laid in an earthen vessel and let the seeds committed to it be watered daily with a lotion in which the diseased limb or body has been washed thus will the disease be transplanted from the human body to the seeds which are in the earth having done this transplant the seeds from the earthen vessel to the ground and wait till they begin to sprout into herbs as they increase the disease will diminish and when they have arrived at their full growth it will disappear altogether kirche the jesuit whose quarrel with the alchemists was the means of exposing many of their impostures was a firm believer in the efficacy of the magnet having been applied to by a patient afflicted with hernia he directed the man to swallow a small magnet reduced to powder while he applied at the same time to the external swelling a poultice made of filings of iron he expected that by this means the magnet when it got to the corresponding place inside would draw in the iron and with it the tumour which would thus he said be safely and expeditiously reduced as this new doctrine of magnetism spread it was found that wounds inflicted with any metallic substance could be cured by the magnet in process of time the delusion so increased that it was deemed sufficient to magnetize a sword to cure any hurt which that sword might have inflicted this was the origin of the celebrated weapon salve which excited so much attention about the middle of the seventeenth century the following was the recipe given by paracelsus for the cure of any wounds inflicted by a sharp weapon except such as had penetrated the heart the brain or the arteries take of moss growing on the head of a thief who has been hanged and left in the air of real mummy of human blood still warm of each one ounce of human suet two ounces of linseed oil turpentine and armenian bowl of each two drams mix all well in a mortar and keep the salve in an oblong narrow urn with this salve the weapon after being dipped in the blood from the wound was to be carefully anointed and then laid by in a cool place in the meantime the wound was to be duly washed with fair clean water covered with a clean soft linen rag and opened once a day to cleanse off purulent or other matter of the success of this treatment says the writer of the able article on animal magnetism in the twelfth volume of the foreign quarterly review there cannot be the least doubt for surgeons at this moment follow exactly the same method except anointing the weapon the weapons have continued to be much spoken of on the continent and many eager claimants appeared for the honor of the invention dr flood or a fluctibus the rosicrucian who has been already mentioned in a previous part of this volume was very zealous in introducing it into england 
He tried it with great success in several cases, and no wonder, for while he kept up the spirits of his patients by boasting of the great efficacy of the salve, he never neglected those common but much more important remedies of washing, bandaging, etc., which the experience of all ages had declared sufficient for the purpose. Flood, moreover, declared that the magnet was a remedy for all diseases if properly applied, but that man, having, like the earth, a north and a south pole, magnetism could only take place when his body was in a boreal position. In the midst of his popularity, an attack was made upon him and his favorite remedy, the salve, which, however, did little or nothing to diminish the belief in its efficacy. One Parson Foster wrote a pamphlet, entitled Hyplochrisma Spungus, or A Sponge to Wipe Away the Weapon Salve, in which he declared that it was as bad as witchcraft to use or recommend such an ungent, that it was invented by the devil, who, at the last day, would seize upon every person who had given it the slightest encouragement. In fact, said Parson Foster, the devil himself gave it to Paracelsus, Paracelsus to the emperor, the emperor to the courtier, and the courtier to Baptista Porta, and Baptista Porta to Dr. Flood, a doctor of physic, yet living and practicing in the famous city of London, who now stands tooth and nail for it. Dr. Flood, thus assailed, took up the pen in defense of his ungent in a reply called The Squeezing of Parson Foster's Sponge, wherein the sponge-bearer's immodest carriage and behavior towards his brethren is detected. The bitter flames of his slanderous reports are, by the sharp vinegar of truth, corrected and quite extinguished and lastly the virtuous validity of his sponge in wiping away the weapon salve is crushed out and clean abolished. Shortly after this dispute, a more distinguished believer in the weapon salve made his appearance in the person of Sir Kenelm Digby, son of Sir Everard Digby, who was executed for his participation in the gunpowder plot. This gentleman, who, in other respects, was an accomplished scholar and an able man, was imbued with all the extravagant notions of the alchemists. He believed in the philosopher's stone, and wished to engage Descartes to devote his energies to the discovery of the elixir of life, or some other means by which the existence of man might be prolonged to an indefinite period. He gave his wife, the beautiful Venetia Anastasia Stanley, a dish of capons fed upon vipers, according to the plan supposed to have been laid down by Arnold of Villeneuve, in the hope that she might thereby preserve her loveliness for a century. If such a man once took up the idea of the weapon salve, it was to be expected that he would make the most of it. In his hands, however, it was changed from an ungent into a powder, and was called the powder of sympathy. He pretended that he had acquired the knowledge of it from a Carmelite friar, who had learned it in Persia or Armenia, from an oriental philosopher of great renown. 
King James, the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Buckingham, and many other noble personages believed in its efficacy. The following remarkable instance of his mode of cure was read by Sir Kenelm to a society of learned men at Montpellier. Mr. James Howell, the well-known author of the Dendrologia, and of various letters, coming by chance as two of his best friends were fighting a duel, rushed between them and endeavored to part them. He seized the sword of one of the combatants by the hilt, while at the same time he grasped the other by the blade. Being transported with fury one against the other, they struggled to rid themselves of the hindrance caused by their friend, and in so doing, the one whose sword was held by the blade by Mr. Howell drew it away roughly and nearly cut his hand off, severing the nerves and muscles and penetrating to the bone. The other, almost at the same instant, disengaged his sword and aimed a blow at the head of his antagonist, which Mr. Howell, observing, raised his wounded hand with the rapidity of thought to prevent the blow. The sword fell on the back of his already wounded hand, and cut it severely. It seemed, said Sir Kenelm Digby, as if some unlucky star raged over them, that they should have both shed the blood of that dear friend for whose life they would have given their own, if they had been in their proper mind at the time. Seeing Mr. Howell's face all besmeared with blood from his wounded hand, they both threw down their swords and embraced him, and bound up his hand with a garter to close the veins which were cut and bled profusely. They then conveyed him home and sent for a surgeon. King James, who was much attached to Mr. Howell, afterwards sent his own surgeon to attend him. We must continue the narrative in the words of Sir Kenelm Digby. It was my chance, says he, to be lodged hard by him, and four or five days after, as I was making myself ready, he came to my house and prayed me to view his wounds. For I understand, said he, that you have extraordinary remedies on such occasions, and my surgeons apprehend some fear that it may grow to a gangrene, and so the hand must be cut off. In effect, his countenance discovered that he was in much pain, which, he said, was insupportable in regard of the extreme inflammation. I told him I would willingly serve him, but if haply he knew the manner how I could cure him, without touching or seeing him, it might be that he would not expose himself to my manner of curing, because he would think it, peradventure, either ineffectual or superstitious. He replied, the many wonderful things which people have related unto me of your way of medicinement makes me nothing doubt at all of its efficacy, and all that I have to say unto you is comprehended in the Spanish proverb, Agase el milagro y agalo mahoma, let the miracle be done, though Mahomet do it. I asked him then for any thing that had the blood upon it, so he presently sent for his garter, wherewith his hand was first bound, and as I called for a basin of water, as if I would wash my hands, I took a handful of powder of vitriol, which I had in my study, and presently dissolved it. As soon as the bloody garter was brought me, 
I put it in the basin, observing in the interim what Mr. Howell did, who stood talking with the gentleman in a corner of my chamber, not regarding at all what I was doing. He started suddenly, as if he had found some strange alteration in himself. I asked him what he ailed. I know not what ails me, but I find that I feel no more pain. Methinks that a pleasing kind of freshness, as it were a wet cold napkin, did spread over my hand, which hath taken away the inflammation that tormented me before. I replied, Since then you feel already so much good of my medicament, I advise you to cast away all your plasters. Only keep the wound clean, and in moderate temper betwixt heat and cold. This was presently reported to the Duke of Buckingham, and a little after to the king, who were both very curious to know the circumstances of the business, which was that after dinner I took the garter out of the water and put it to dry before a great fire. It was scarce dry before Mr. Howell's servant came running, and saying that his master felt as much burning as ever he had done, if not more, for the heat was such as if his hand were betwixt coals of fire. I answered that, although that had happened at present, yet he should find ease in a short time, for I knew the reason of this new accident, and would provide accordingly, for his master should be free from that inflammation, it might be before he could possibly return to him. But, in case he found no ease, I wished him to come presently back again. If not, he might forbear coming. Thereupon he went, and at the instant I did put the garter again into the water. Thereupon he found his master without any pain at all. To be brief, there was no sense of pain afterwards. But within five or six days the wounds were cicatrized and entirely healed. Such is the marvellous story of Sir Kenelm Digby. Other practitioners of that age were not behind him in their pretensions. It was not always thought necessary to use either the powder of sympathy or the weapon salve to effect a cure. It was sufficient to magnetize the sword with the hand, the first faint dawn of the animal theory, to relieve any pain the same weapon had caused. They asserted that if they stroked the sword upwards with their fingertips, the wounded person would feel immediate relief, but if they stroked it downwards, he would feel intolerable pain. Another very singular notion of the power and capabilities of magnetism was entertained at the same time. It was believed that a sympathetic alphabet could be made on the flesh by means of which persons could correspond with each other and communicate all their ideas with the rapidity of volition, although thousands of miles apart. From the arms of two persons a piece of flesh was cut and mutually transplanted while still warm and bleeding. The piece so severed grew to the new arm on which it was placed, but still retained so close a sympathy with its native limb that its old possessor was always sensible of any injury done to it. Upon these transplanted pieces were tattooed the letters of the alphabet, 
so that when a communication was to be made, either of the persons, though the wide Atlantic rolled between them, had only to prick his arm with a magnetic needle, and straight away his friend received intimation that the telegraph was at work. Whatever letter he pricked on his own arm pained the same letter on the arm of his correspondent. Contemporary with Sir Kenelm Digby was the no less famous Mr. Valentine Greatrax, who, without mentioning magnetism or laying claim to any theory, practiced upon himself and others a deception much more akin to the animal magnetism of the present day than the mineral magnetism it was then so much the fashion to study. He was the son of an Irish gentleman, of good education and property, in the county of Cork. He fell, at an early age, into a sort of melancholy derangement. After some time he had an impulse, or strange persuasion in his mind, which continued to present itself, whether he were sleeping or waking, that God had given him the power of curing the king's evil. He mentioned this persuasion to his wife, who very candidly told him that he was a fool. He was not quite sure of this, notwithstanding the high authority from which it came, and determined to make trial of the power that was in him. A few days afterwards, he went to one William Mayer of Saltersbridge, in the parish of Lismore, who was grievously afflicted with the king's evil in his eyes, cheek, and throat. Upon this man, who was of abundant faith, he laid his hands, stroked him, and prayed fervently. He had the satisfaction to see him heal considerably in the course of a few days, and finally, with the aid of other remedies, to be quite cured. This success encouraged him in the belief that he had a divine mission. Day after day he had further impulses from on high that he was called upon to cure the ague also. In the course of time he extended his powers to the curing of epilepsy, ulcers, aches, and lameness. All the county of Cork was in a commotion to see this extraordinary physician, who certainly operated some very great benefit in cases where the disease was heightened by hypochondria and depression of spirits. According to his own account, such great multitudes resorted to him from diverse places that he had no time to follow his own business or enjoy the company of his family and friends. He was obliged to set aside three days in the week, from six in the morning till six at night, during which time only he laid hands upon all that came. Still the crowds which thronged around him were so great that the neighboring towns were not able to accommodate them. He thereupon left his house in the country and went to Ugal, where the resort of sick people, not only from all parts of Ireland, but from England, continued so great that the magistrates were afraid they would infect the place by their diseases. Several of these poor credulous people no sooner saw him than they fell into fits, and he restored them by waving his hand in their faces and praying over them. Nay, he affirmed that the touch of his glove had driven pains away, and on one occasion 
cast out from a woman several devils or evil spirits who tormented her day and night. Every one of these devils, says Greatrax, was like to choke her when it came up into her throat. It is evident from this that the woman's complaint was nothing but hysteria. The clergy of the diocese of Lismore, who seemed to have had much clearer notions of Greatrax's pretensions than their parishioners, set their faces against the new prophet and worker of miracles. He was cited to appear in the dean's court, and prohibited from laying on his hands for the future. But he cared nothing for the church. He imagined that he derived his powers direct from heaven, and continued to throw people into fits, and bring them to their senses again, as usual, almost exactly after the fashion of modern magnetizers. His reputation became, at last, so great that Lord Conway sent to him from London, begging that he would come over immediately to cure a grievous headache which his lady had suffered for several years, and which the principal physicians of England had been unable to relieve. Greatrax accepted the invitation, and tried his manipulations and prayers upon Lady Conway. He failed, however, in affording any relief. The poor lady's headache was excited by causes too serious to allow her any help, even from faith and a lively imagination. He lived for some months in Lord Conway's house at Ragley in Warwickshire, operating cures similar to those he had performed in Ireland. He afterwards removed to London, and took a house in Lincoln's Inn Fields, which soon became the daily resort of all the nervous and gradulous women of the metropolis. A very amusing account of Greatrax at this time, 1665, is given in the second volume of the Miscellanies of St. Evermond, under the title of the Irish Prophet. It is the most graphic sketch ever made of this early magnetizer. Whether his pretensions were more or less absurd than those of some of his successors, who have lately made their appearance among us, would be hard to say. When Monsieur de Cominges, says St. Evermond, was ambassador from his most Christian majesty to the king of Great Britain, there came to London an Irish prophet, who passed himself off as a great worker of miracles. Some persons of quality having begged Monsieur de Cominges to invite him to his house, that they might be witnesses of some of his miracles, the ambassador promised to satisfy them, as much to gratify his own curiosity as from courtesy to his friends, and gave notice to Greatrax that he would be glad to see him. A rumor of the prophet's coming soon spread all over the town, and the hotel of Monsieur de Cominges was crowded by sick persons who came full of confidence in their speedy cure. The Irishman made them wait a considerable time for him, but came at last, in the midst of their impatience, with a grave and simple countenance that showed no signs of his being a cheat. Monsieur de Cominges prepared to question him strictly, hoping to discourse with him on the matters that he had read of in Van Helmont and Bodinus. But he was not able to do so, 
much to his regret for the crowd became so great and cripples and others pressed around so impatiently to be the first cured that the servants were obliged to use threats and even force before they could establish order among them or place them in proper ranks the prophet affirmed that all diseases were caused by evil spirits every infirmity was with him a case of diabolical possession the first that was presented to him was a man suffering from gout and rheumatism, and so severely that the physicians had been unable to cure him. Ah, said the miracle worker, I have seen a good deal of this sort of spirits when I was in Ireland. They are watery spirits, who bring on cold shivering and excite an overflow of aqueous humors in our poor bodies. Then, addressing the man, he said, Evil spirit, who hast quitted thy dwelling in the waters to come and afflict this miserable body, I command thee to quit thy new abode, and to return to thine ancient habitation. This said, the sick man was ordered to withdraw, and another was brought forward in his place. This newcomer said he was tormented by the melancholy vapors. In fact, he looked like a hypochondriac, one of those persons diseased in imagination, and who but too often become so in reality. Aerial spirit, said the Irishman, return, I command thee, into the air. Excise thy natural vocation of raising tempests, and do not excite any more wind in this sad, unlucky body. This man was immediately turned away to make room for a third patient, who, in the Irishman's opinion, was only tormented by a little bit of a sprite, who could not withstand his command for an instant. He pretended that he recognized the sprite by some marks which were invisible to the company, to whom he turned with a smile, and said, This sort of spirit does not often do much harm, and is always very diverting. To hear him talk one would have imagined that he knew all about spirits, their names, their rank, their numbers, their employment, and all the functions they were destined to. And he boasted of being much better acquainted with the intrigues of demons than he was with the affairs of men. You can hardly imagine what a reputation he gained in a short time. Catholics and Protestants visited him from every part, all believing that power from heaven was in his hands. After relating a rather equivocal adventure of a husband and wife, who implored Tracks to cast out the devil of dissension which had crept in between them, St. Evermond thus sums up the effect he produced on the popular mind. So great was the confidence in him that the blind fancied they saw the light which they did not see the deaf imagined that they heard, the lame that they walked straight, and the paralytic that they had recovered the use of their limbs. An idea of health made the sick forget for a while their maladies, and imagination, which was not less active in those merely drawn by curiosity than in the sick, gave a false view to the one class from the desire of seeing, as it operated a false cure on the other, from the strong desire of being healed. 
Such was the power of the Irishman over the mind, and such was the influence of the mind upon the body. Nothing was spoken of in London but his prodigies, and these prodigies were supported by such great authorities that the bewildered multitude believed them almost without examination, while more enlightened people did not dare to reject them from their own knowledge. The public opinion, timid and enslaved, respected this imperious and apparently well-authenticated error. Those who saw through the delusion kept their opinion to themselves, knowing how useless it was to declare their disbelief to a people filled with prejudice and admiration. About the same time that Valentine Greatrax was thus magnetizing the people of London, an Italian enthusiast named Francisco Bagnone was performing the same tricks in Italy, and with as great success. He had only to touch weak women with his hands, or sometimes, for the sake of working more effectively upon their fanaticism, with a relic, to make them fall into fits and manifest all the symptoms of magnetism. End of chapter 7, part 1